Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by Melvin Bragg, whose new book is A Very Brief History, as he puts it, of William Tyndall, the man who produced maybe the most influential of all the English Bible translations and one of the first. Melvin, welcome. Now, why Tyndall in particular? Because, of course, there was an English version of the Bible maybe 150-odd years before in Wycliffe's translation and the King James Bible came afterwards. What's the significance of Tyndall? Why is he such a big figure? I think Tyndall's a big figure because he defined the King James Bible. The Wycliffe Bible is very important, but it was initially suppressed. It didn't have much traction, although gallant young people from Oxford took it round and got tortured and often executed for their pains. And if you want to see what that meant, you can go to the Lambeth Palace where there still is a Lollard's torture chamber, have some snaps. It hadn't any traction. It hadn't worked its way into the language. It hadn't worked its way into the culture at all. Tyndall came at a time after Luther, which was extraordinary eruption in Europe. He came with a genius. I think Tyndall and Shakespeare are our two geniuses. Tyndall had a genius for translation. When you look at the phrases, the use of monosyllables, new words he coined, and on and on and on. And he translated the New Testament abroad because he was exiled from this country and so on. And what he produced was something which did two things, at least two things. One was he produced what he intended to do, was to give God's word to the English people in their own language. He couldn't understand. He couldn't understand Henry VIII, whom he admired. He admired kings because they were in the Bible. Why he could be so cruel as not to want his people to understand his word. He produced that in the clearest English imaginable. And he produced it, had he said, in one terrific row he had, very well reported, with a lot of divines and bishops when he was 23. And one of them said, in exasperation, they found Master Tyndall wearisome, this 23-year-old who kept pulling stuff down from the shelf and saying, it's not in the scriptures, it's not in the scriptures. And they said, if challenged, I would support the laws of the Pope against the laws of God. Tyndall went incandescent, and he said, ere long, I will teach a ploughboy to know the Bible better than thee. And that was brilliant because the ploughboy was illiterate. And also the ploughboy had a, some sort of strange link with the apostles, somebody off the land call, but he was illiterate. And Tyndall set out to write a Bible to be read, therefore to be understood by anybody, therefore to be in the language that he could break down to the simplest language. It's full of monosyllables. Shakespeare takes a lot from him. He borrows a lot from Old English, the monosyllabic thing. He takes common phrases from the West Country and invents what seem like old common phrases himself. So that's the first thing. But that wasn't his main purpose. His main purpose was to make sure that the English, last of all, because the Germans had the Bible in vernacular, the Italians did, the French did, the Czechs did, all of but we didn't. Make sure that English people could read the Word of God in English. And then he truly believed that the world would be changed. Once they saw it, once they read it, they would lose the duty of obedience and have the liberty to discuss, the liberty to argue. I mean, the Tyndall of your book has a sort of peculiar combination of, you know, almost sort of Robespierre-like incorruptibility, but also a strange naivety about him. I mean, in that he almost doesn't seem to see how deeply the kind of church control of the Vulgate and the Latin language of prayer was enmeshed with sort of political structures and with, you know, a whole lot of things that were not really to do with God, but to do with mammon. Do you see him as a sort of naive or someone who simply thought what he was doing was so much more important? I would use the word innocent, but I think we're both on the same track. I think it didn't matter to him. 
I think that he was one of those people like Newton, like the Bronte sisters, who were very young, locked into what he wanted to do, like Newton getting the prism, like the Bronte sisters writing these massive stories in tiny print. When he was very young, he read that Athelstan, an Anglo-Saxon king, had translated the Bible to English. And what we know, we know very little about him, we know that, but she had completely fired him, and that is what he wanted to do. And he started to do it quite early on. And of course, at that time, it was an offence, almost a crime, if he got caught. And he knew what he was doing from the beginning. He was challenging... He didn't think he was challenging the state. I agree with you. In that, I think he was naive. He thought he was challenging the church. How much was he influenced by Luther? I mean, this obviously, the sort of justification by faith is a crucial part of his outlook. But was, you know, was he someone who saw what was happening in Europe and thought this is something to be inspired by? I think he was very influenced by Luther. Who opposed the Catholic Church from 1517 onwards was not influenced by Luther. Luther's effect was extraordinary. I mean, Luther's thesis, those 95 theses, started revolutions in Europe. Thousands of people were killed in the name of it. States thought they would topple the whole Catholic, Catholic hierarchy. So Armageddon in Luther, this terrible monk who wouldn't stop. So he was influenced by Luther because the waves came over. He'd worked his way through on his own to translate the Bible into English, as Luther translated the Bible into German. So that was his own. Justification by faith... I, didn't, I think he got that phrase from Luther. But from the very beginning, he fundamentally believed in the scriptures. If it was not in the scriptures, it was not worthy of attention or pay, giving any obedience. The Pope was not in the scriptures, so he had to go. Penitence was not in the scriptures. Pilgrimage was not in the scriptures. Purgatory was not in the scriptures. And on and on it went. So they were out. They had to. The great wealth of an establishment were not in the scriptures. The church itself as a building, when he translated from the Greek, because Erasmus at Cambridge said, go back to the Greek, went back to the Greek, he translated the word the Bulgarian translated into church, Ecclesia, he translated it into congregation. It was no longer a building. It was an assembly of people. And they translated presbyteros. The, the, yes, the Bulgarian, these two linguistic hinges. Yes, that, yeah. well, it was radical. And they knew when they read it, they thought, we were in real trouble, and they, he, he wouldn't have priest either, because the only priest was Christ, who was the intermediary. You did not need priests. So if you didn't need a building, and you didn't need priests, and you didn't need a pope, where was the Catholic Church? And you didn't need purgatory, therefore you were penniless, because that made all the money, yeah. your indulgences. And so, and so through that... How do you translate presbyteros? Pardon? Sorry, you were saying presbyteros. P-R-E-S... B-Y-T-E-R-O-S. But how did he translate it? Because He translated it. He said that there was no such thing as a priest. An elder was the word. Elder. Elder. Yeah. elder. He translated as elder, yes. You've said he was sort of unworldly about politics, but of course his entire life in some sense was shaped by the politics of the English Reformation or what became the English Reformation. Can you talk a bit about how his sort of relationship with Henry VIII, which was always at a proxy kind of proceeded because to start with he was pretty much hounded out wasn't he yes. well he was unworldly about politics in the sense of the playing of politics although when he, he went face to face with Thomas More he was very acute he was very sharp about what he wanted he was very much a scholar but there was a total fearlessness about him he was shipwrecked he got all his he, he got back and he got his stuff together they raided the printing works that he was working in Germany he heard of it got out just in time beat them to the Rhine jumped on another boat he was fearless and very fast on his feet in certain ways his relationship with Henry VIII was curious because he thought the king was right to be the king he didn't want emperors, he didn't want but the king was king it's in the bible there's a king so he owned allegiance to the king he didn't say anything about the king Anything against the king that I can find. 
It was Henry, this volatile, increasingly frustrated, slightly mad, and one suspects going mentally ill towards the end, bully who suddenly realised at the end of the 1520s that they, they got Luther in England, not materially, but in his book. This man was the danger to England that Luther was everywhere else because people lapped up his book. Thousands of copies of that New Testament came over. So many, for instance, that the Bishop of London bought 3,000 of them just to burn outside the old St. Paul's. And these were coming in, and people loved it, and they were reading it aloud to her, so he just, they couldn't get it out. Yes, so you described Tyndall as taking some satisfaction in the thought that at least his printing costs would be offset right. by he this did, great yes. book. He was very upset. He said, yes, my, I'll, be, I'll be the richer for it, and the, and the English will be outraged that the word of God is being, is being burned. So his relationship with the king was, his last, the last words, I think we started at the end, before he was burned to death, were, O oh Lord, open the king of England's eyes. He just believed the king needed persuading and then all would be well. And there was a moment where it looked as if he could persuade the king and then that faded away. It wasn't that he was against, he was against the church. There is one moment, I think, that, that seems like a classic, oh God, couldn't you have just flinched a bit to one side when he declares support for the king and it looks like there's going to be the reconciliation and, but then he says you know the king's looking for Tyndall's support indirectly for his annulment and he says oh no that's not in the bible you know <laughs> yeah he is <laughs> it does the king tried to say that he he wasn't really married because in Leviticus you, you can't take your brother's wife and that was his game and the pope tried to resist it, it was a very good plan Tyndall came in behind him and said yes and he wrote a book on the obedience to kings. And Henry, we rejoiced. This is a book that all kings should read, he said. But Tyndall went back to the Old Testament and ferreted away and ferreted away and found another superior reference where you couldn't <laughs> do that. So then the king went mad and would never hear his name at court again and wouldn't let Anne Boleyn speak, as we, as we know, speak his name again. And that tried to tempt him back with sort of poisonous invitations sent over, promising him a place on the council. Imagine Tyndall being on the council. And Tyndall was, you know, a very sad man in exile. He didn't have much money. He had enough to do the books. He's wool he came from a rich woolen family in the west of England. And they, were, they, they too were against the corruption of the church. So they supported him to a great extent. But it wasn't much to go on. And then the Holy Roman Emperor's spies were against him. They eventually caught him. The Pope's spies were after him. He was leading a wretched life. And the king tried to tease him back. There's a wonderful diplomat called Stephen Bourne, who is a brilliant man, and who managed to meet up with him. And didn't tempt him. Stephen Bourne thought he was a marvellous man. And all the promises he made, Tyndall said couldn't do it and because he knew. and then Tyndall there's this very moving last meeting when and Tyndall said is if the King of England will translate anybody's anybody will translate it into the English language, then I'll come back and I will endure anything he wants me to do. Torture, death, execute and you know you know people knew that he meant it. I will do that. Will you tell him that please? And he would have done it. And despite 20 or 30 years of work, not his translation, anybody's. Vaughan took it back to Thomas Cromwell and there was no reply. Yes, you see, when you talk about Vaughan, you sometimes leave it slightly ambiguous as to whether you think Vaughan was, you know, on behalf of Cromwell, trying to kind of just tempt him back so that he could be put to the sword of the fire or whatever, or actually genuinely trying to get him rehabilitated. Do you have a... Well, my theory, but it's not... I, I can't find much evidence except in the words of Vaughan, Vaughan's letters back were brilliant letters and he was obviously very sympathetic to this man he admired him very much and he liked meeting him they met three times but he felt that it was going to be hope but he was trying his best there was a time when thomas cromwell 
you feel was really really wanted him back thought this is a man we should have on our side maybe inside the tent instead of outside the yeah. tent whatever it was and and there's one stage where Henry VIII said how can we stop this man poisoning us to the eyes of the world with his works because he wrote essays with, like his old very fiery sermons as a young man so that was going on but yes I think they were sympathetic to him I think people who met him were sympathetic to him what was there not to like he was an honest man dedicated incredibly erudite taught himself Hebrew discovered massive connection between Hebrew and Old English which is one of the reasons you say in the book he just kind of saw Hebrew and Old English as much more congruent much more congruent much easier better to translate from than Latin and so it is if you look at other scholars say it is so he was delighted with that I mean the last things when he was in the dungeon for the last 16 months of his life one of the things he wanted was a Hebrew dictionary his Hebrew grammar and so he could get on with his translation from the Hebrew also a warm discovery. hat, I think. Warm hat, yes. You would think the five floors under in, in North Belgium for 16 months. You'd more than a warm hat, wouldn't you? Now, this kind of remarkable egolessness to him you, you've already touched on. One of the things that's sort of almost like a little buried grenade in this book is not only that he's translating the Bible into English, but he writes somewhere, if a passage doesn't make sense, retranslate it yourself. Mm. You know, I mean, he's almost proposing a sort of open source Bible. Yes, let me know and I will... I'll retranslate it. Yes, he was very aware of that. I think in, that was in the early days. In the early days, he, because he did so much work on his own, I think he was worried about was his Greek quite good enough. And his Latin was obviously marvellous after that Oxford education, which was drummed it into them from the age of 12 to about the age of 18. And they were brilliant at it. Cicero, Virgil, Aesop, anybody. But the Greek he'd had to take on himself. And the Anglo-Saxon he picked up for himself. So he was, he'd got his, his worries about that. But I think there was a true humility. I thought it was a shared thing, and if somebody had a better view, fine. Didn't even put his name on it, did he? No. And I, I, there's a bit of book where you describe there's literally just one intact copy of the 1526 yeah. New Testament. You've held it in your hands. I did, yes. It's, thousands were produced, that's the thing to remember. Thousands and thousands, and snapped up or burned, because they're burning in London, burning in Cambridge, burning in, in, in Norfolk, Norwich. And St Paul's is proud to have three copies. I spoke in St Paul's the other night and thought, well, this is a, this is a how do you do. They're proud about three copies. None of them are intact. There's a frontispiece torn up here. and that's a, There's one intact. It's in Stuttgart. And they've got a library of libraries in Stuttgart, underground library of libraries. It's about as big as St James Park across the road from it. It's enormous. And they brought this first edition of the 1525 New Testament, which is probably, according to people who know more than I do, the most influential book in the English language, even more influential Shakespeare than there's ever been, and also on Protestantism. Look what happened to Protestantism. It's ironic that Luther was the bigger person then, but because Tyndall wrote in English and because we had a British Empire and then an American Empire, it's Tyndall, Tyndall's words that have taken Protestantism and all that went with it around the world and everything that did go with it was massive. Anyway, this book came out, and I was disappointed first because they came out and they were very nice about it, and it's that big. It's as big as my wallet. It's, if it's not a big wallet, it's that big. And you looked at it and you're very disappointed. You think this caused the wrecking of, of England. And, and then you think, well, partly he didn't have enough money, but partly you think it's brilliant because you can easily hide it in your phone. It doesn't draw attention to itself. Yes, I mean, you could it's, be put to death. In the, oh, yeah, so and they were, oh, because yeah. what happened yeah. when Wolseley went, and they really got going, particularly when Thomas Moore got going, I mean, the burning of the books turned into the burning of the people. This city that we're in now, I mean, the smoke was not pollution, it was, it was human flesh. 
burnings, burnings, burnings. Men, women, and children for knowing Tyndall, for being suspected of reading his Bible, of course, for having his Bible, for anything to do with Tyndall or his Bible, for not confessing in show trials, because some of them said, well, we, we agree with some of the things. They said, well, that was enough. And they were tortured in the tower, and many of them burnt. It was, it was terrible. It was extraordinary, I suppose. I'm, I'm trying to avoid the word witch hunt, but it isn't, it isn't easy to avoid because they were just persecuted. And they, it's interesting that this was the class who were doing, who were doing it were, were two sorts, really, if you can talk about class in that, in that time. It was very much a literate artisan class who went on to become, a few, on the leaps a few centuries ahead, the roundheads in the Civil War, the dissenters who formed the signs, the people who went to America, the Presbyterians and all that sort of thing. And it was the gentry, the lower gentry, like Tyndall's own folk, who just had had it. I mean, and there's a spin in the book where I talk about just a, a description of the parish of Wooten Edge for one. It was extraordinary. Out of, say, 30 or 40 monks, 30 of them didn't know who'd written the Lord's Prayer, uh, 25 didn't know where the Ten Commandments were and certainly couldn't repeat so it's them. It's like a politician being ambushed on breakfast TV <laughs> and asked the price of a pint of milk. Yes. <laughs> and on and on it went. They didn't know anything. And that they were outraged with that. And they also saw this nonsense about having to pay all this money for everything you did. And by that time, the, the wealth of the church in all the senses of wealth they took for granted and, and they didn't see what might come to be destroyed and a lot was destroyed. But Tyndall became the enemy. Tyndall was the dangerous man and Henry was right about that and then Francis Moore moved in and it was terrible. Do we it's, have a sense of how Tyndall, at all, of how Tyndall felt about the fact, you know, while he was in exile in Europe, you know, his friends, his associates, everybody who kind of <laughs> stuck up for him or, or followed him was liable to be toasting over a bonfire. No, I, I found no direct evidence. Maybe some will turn up. One assumes that he was extremely distressed and assumes that he was told, don't set foot there, don't go there. Stay and do the work you're supposed to do. Get on with the Old Testament, go back and do the New Testament better. I should imagine he was buried. I mean, his own brother was hauled through London on the back of a donkey and forced to throw his Bible into the fire outside St Paul's. And on and on it went. So he would have known about that because they seem to have been very much in contact. Um, the unexpected villain of the book is Thomas Moore, who, thanks to Robert Bolt's play, among other things, we all think of as this kind of heroic figure. He comes across as an absolutely horrible piece of work. Yes, yes, people don't like to hear that. And I, I feel a bit bad. Charles Lamb later thought he went, he went, writing about it, thought he went mad. There's a correspondence between Moore and Tyndall, which is 750,000 words. And Tyndall doesn't swear, he calls it the devil and all that. Moore's scatology, it's unrepeatable, even at the advanced liberal level of the spectrum. <laughs> it's unbelievable. I, I mean, Luther was scatological, we all know that, but this was vile and violent talking about Tyndall and what he... I put a tiny bit of it in the book, just, I was about to say taster, but a tastelesser. Moore just... There's a quotation there from Moore, and basically it says, should Tyndall prevail should this these ideas because they saw it as a book of ideas as well as a book of faith because of ecclesia because Tyndall knew what he was doing and they knew what he was doing should he do this then the church would collapse society would collapse laws would be put to scorn there'd be rioting there'd be mystery and the whole artifice of the state and the church we have it would be doomed and he truly thought that it said needless to say much better than I've said it but it's a direct quotation from him. And he truly believed that. He thought he was defending, not more than the civilization, God's civilization. He thought this was, 
this was going to be t- absolutely terrible, beyond terrible. And Fox wrote about him that he had in his garden in Chelsea a tree called the Tree of Truth, and people would be bad to it, and Moore himself would lash them until he got confessions. And some say he had a torture chamber there. He certainly went to the tower to see people tortured and lamed there, that sort of thing. But the virulence of the language was extraordinary, and the violent way he wanted to destroy Tyndall. And he thought, when you think, there's this man, as you say, across the sea, looking on, unable to come back, hardly able to move in his in the city which had taken him in, Antwerp. But the wool house, again, it's the English, the wool trade was our biggest trade, and Antwerp was our great our great base in Europe, 5,000 people in the wool house, and he was helping there. People looked after him because of family connections, I presume, apart from everything else. And he was evaded capture for something like 15 years until he was until a Judas turned up. This Judas comes across as the equivalent of a kind of gap year wastrel spending his parents' inheritance, pretty much. Yeah, it's very Phillips. shallow, tiny little character. Yeah, isn't yeah, it's appalling man. Yes, and he he lied and cheated his parents and robbed his parents and robbed his friends and lied to everybody. Anyway, somehow got to know Tyndall in Antwerp. He was from the West Country, so perhaps they had connections. Anyway, one way or another. He literally fingered Tyndall. I, I should have looked it up, actually. I wondered whether this is where the word came from, because he was rather a tall young man. Tyndall was not tall, modestly high. But there was a narrow passage from the wall house into the main streets of Antwerp. This man, Henry Phillips, who made a sort of friend of Tyndall, um, was a tall man, and he walked behind him down this alley, because it was a single, narrow alley, and as they came out, he pointed, fingers, fingers, because nobody knew who he was. Thousands of people in Antwerp walking around in long black gowns. And nobody, he wasn't famous enough to be painted by Holbein or anything, so who, who was he? And he pointed him out, and the emperor had sent the Swiss guards there, and they, they arrested him, because he pointed him out with his finger. And one of the Swiss guards said, we pitied him in his innocence. And then he, very strange how these things happened at that time. He had a meal with his captors while they collected his things, because nobody, I suppose nobody thought this was going to last for very long. And then they took him to this 14th century castle with deep dungeons and put him there, and he never got out there except to be killed 16 months later. And as you've said, Tyndall has more or less invented the modern English language. You know, it, it emerges in your book that the King James Bible, which we think of as this great work of, the only work of artistic genius produced by a committee, and, you know, that all subsequent, you know, that Shakespeare's learnt from Tyndall. How come then, you know, Tyndall is not sort of embraced with statues everywhere? And, you know, why has he, his name sort of been eclipsed if he's as important an architect of modern politics and the modern church and modern language as he is? Well, there are two or three reasons. First of all, he died in 1536, and Bibles came and then tumbled out for the rest of the century. None of them paid any tribute to Tyndall at all. Henry VIII had banished the sound of his name, and I don't think anybody wanted to talk about Tyndall, because Tyndall had frightened the life out of them. And when they got him dead, they were very pleased about that, because he had a growing army in this country, and the people were being burned because they were rejecting. People that were prepared to go to death for, for the words that he'd written. They wanted nothing more to do. And then, of course, people like Coverdale and that who they wanted to claim the credit for themselves. Coverdale had been his assistant, taking a lot of manuscripts, taking a lot of pages away with him and put it down. So he wanted the credit for the Coverdale Bible, that's what it was called, and so on. So then you think of almost 80 or 90 years passing with this erasure going on. And then the King James Bible came, ba-boom, into thing. Now, they forget that Shakespeare... There's over 1,300 references from the Tyndall family in Shakespeare. How could he have got those if it hadn't been Tyndall? Because 1611 is when the King James, 1615, Shakespeare's top writing and dead and gone. So obviously something was happening in, in the middle there. So it, it all became the King James Bible. 
And the King James Bible, the King James Version, just became the sacred book. It became the book of this country, became our book, as it was, and the king and the, the story went out of these these fifty learned people who'd done it, and King James, because it was very much the king's book. It wasn't called the Bible or anything like that. It was the King James Bible. It's my book. <laughs> and he in the in the deeds in the deeds and the he said that he had the right to change anything, but he wanted to change. Has he got a Got editorial, editorial control. control. <laughs> <laughs> Sign it off. That's right. I am in the spectator. Yes, yeah. <laughs> he had. Yes, that was made absolutely clear to them when he, he laid this out down. When he said he wanted this Bible, and so it became just taken fact that that was there's, there's a laziness and there's an acceptance. This was the King James Bible. Nobody thought behind it because it was so good, and because it mattered so much, and because it mattered so much to so many different people. You know, it mattered to religious people, then it began to matter to political people, because in it, the great idea was, which is, almost didn't say, so look, if we're equal before God, well, maybe we're equal in front of each other, so this quite soon after it came out, they're talking seriously about democracy, which they would never, the liberty to think, you know, and replace the duty to believe, and they're thinking these things through, we, they, we, oh, just down the river, Putney, the Putney debates, and so on. And on it goes, and then the Americans, the, the people of the Presbyterian faction, who took it over to the States, it was the King James Bible. Now, there was no reason for anybody to dig in. I don't think there was the scholarly skills in those days either, to say maybe this isn't what it says it is, because what it said it is was the Word of God authorised by King James, and all Matthew Smith in his introduction, all of us did all this, that and the other. It wasn't until the 19th century when English scholars started, when German scholars started to look at the overall Bible and English scholars started to look at the New Testament and they said, and they, they got hold of Tyndall Cobbers and they said, there's something going on here. And then they began to build it up. But it never achieved, there are, there are statues of Tyndall in this country, there are Tyndall, Tyndall places, but it never achieved the traction. It didn't have the grandeur and glamour of those 50 scholars. And I suppose, in a certain extent, Simon, nobody was very much bothered with the Bible was the Bible. It was as if it had parachuted down from the clouds, and there it was. So I think what was Tyndall? 93% of the King James 93 Bible 93% King... of the New Testament is Tyndall. Yeah. It's quite a thought, isn't it? <laughs> Just what were those 50 scholars doing? <laughs> well, they thought that they were making... I think what the quotation is, Matthew said... In his introduction, Matthew Smith said, I, we sought not to make a new book or a good book, but to make good books better. But they didn't connect that all these books had nothing in common. So it's a very strange story. Anyway, in the middle of the 19th century, it got going. But it's like the King James Bible had become more than a Bible. It had become a national, and in terms of America, as well as this country, America, the book, the authority, the King James Version. Who would want to challenge it? And why? So somebody else did a bit, oh, who cares? It's the King James Version, you know? That's what it is, uh, and that's what we stand by, and they still do. That's where there is on it, as you know. And they're from Lincoln to Obama, and what's his name? So there was no reason to investigate, nor to go back to the point, was there the scholarship. The scholarship developed where people could look at these texts and say, that is not only similar to that, that is borrowed from that. And that was earlier, so what does that mean? These words are used in the same order, the same words and the same rhythms are going on. And that's broken down in that way, that sentence. And these rhythms, blessed the pure and spirit, that's there. So what's happened there? And instead of make light, there's let there be light. Well, that's there, that's Tyndall, not just that. So what's, and they began to burrow away at it. And it gradually, very slowly, and it's still going on. People said, no, he did it. And so he did. Melvin Bragg, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.